Well, here we are back with another Evening Under Lamplight podcast with Robert Louis Abrahamson, continuing through Dante's Purgatorio. We're in the middle section of the poem in which Virgil is giving his famous, notorious, discussion about the nature of love. We've heard about the ways love goes wrong, along the pattern of the seven deadly sins, which forms the arrangement of the terraces here on Mount Purgatory. But now, in Canto 18, he's going to move on to discuss love in itself. Canto 18 begins just where Canto 17 left off. Having finished what he had to say, Virgil looks into Dante's face to see if his explanations have answered Dante's questions. Dante's having a moment of doubt. Yes, Virgil has answered one part of his questions, but he still has more he'd like to know. Yet, he he wonders, is he being too demanding, asking Virgil to explain more things? Now, Virgil can see what Dante is thinking about and gives him some words of encouragement. And so Dante asks what's on his mind. I understand everything you've said about good and bad actions depending on different degrees of love, but what I still don't understand is the very nature of love itself. And so Virgil is off again. Let's let's see if I can get it clear for us now. We are born, he says, with the innate faculty of love. When love sees something that pleases it, that pleasure spurs it to act, to come towards that attractive object of desire. Here's how it works. We perceive something outside us, and then we make a mental image of it, allowing us to examine it. If our mind finds it attractive, this is a natural love, the natural attraction of beauty to us. And out of this arises quite naturally a desire for that object, and we irresistibly move towards it as long as we continue to find it enjoyable, that is, as long as it continues to give us pleasure. Some people say that this proves that all desires coming from love are good because love is always good. But that doesn't quite follow. The love may be good, but the object may not be right, and it would make the desire unworthy. Virgil stops for breath, and let's stop for a minute also to think of some examples to clarify these points. Suppose I see a beautiful flower in the park. Its beauty arouses my love for it. Nothing wrong with that. And my love, being attracted to it, desires it and moves towards it. Maybe I just want to smell the flower or examine its intricate petals and colors, and then after I've enjoyed it, the desire leaves me. But, but suppose my desire for the flower goes so far that I step over the little fencing, walk over the grass with the sign, Keep Off the Grass, and pluck the flower to take home, despite the other sign that says, Do not pick the flowers. <laughs> now my love has gone too far, and I've violated park regulations. But I love this flower, we might say, trying to justify ourselves, and surely you don't want to deprive me of something I love so much? Well, yes, Virgil argues, we do want to deprive you. Look and sniff all you want from the proper distance, but don't think you can go too far just because you like the flower. But Dante is still puzzled. You say that we cannot help loving those attractive things that we perceive outside us. If that's so, then we cannot be blamed or praised either, come to that, for anything we love. What he sort of means is that it sounds like we're just machines, powered by some automatic force called love. 
Well, Virgil answers, I can explain some of this to you. As far as human reason can go, there's more to it, which is beyond me to explain. But you'll have to wait until you see Beatrice. She'll clarify for you that part of love that depends on faith. He then identifies that part of our makeup that is distinctly human, our reasoning ability. We cannot perceive this ability directly, but only by looking at what it does. We cannot explain where it comes from, just as we cannot explain, say, why bees make honey. It's this reasoning power that enables us to discern what is good from what is bad or wrong. By the way, I think it's precisely this aspect that's missing in the damned souls we saw in the Inferno, who have lost il ben dell'intelletto, the good of their intellect. Because they got into the habit of ignoring what their reason perceived as good, they then lost that reasoning ability altogether. Everyone in hell, we might say, is insane. But there's something else required. Our free will, our power to choose the good and avoid the bad. There's, there's no merit in simply understanding that something is good or bad. The merit, or blame, comes from that next step of choosing one or the other. Well, well, like this. I am attracted to that lovely flower over there in the park, and my attraction makes me want to go up closer to smell it, look at it, perhaps even snip it off to take away. Nothing wrong with that. It's just a desire. It's a natural desire. But my reason sees a wider context, such as the signs forbidding me from doing this, and also perhaps a sense that it would be good not to trample on the grass and good to leave this flower there so others might enjoy it. Good. My ability to reason this out is working well. But none of this really matters very much until we use our free will to choose whether to follow that impulse and go over to the flower or resist the impulse. This is where morality comes into it, and praise or blame, and as a consequence, either the growth or the shriveling of our soul. I think I've said a little more, but also perhaps a little less than Virgil said, but I think what I've said follows the lesson he's presented. When he stops speaking, Dante immediately turns our attention to another time check. It's after midnight, and, and the moon is still bright in the sky. It's taken quite a while for Virgil to explain all this stuff. Dante has taken it all in, but it's been a little much, especially after such a long day of activity, and his mind starts to wander, in that state between waking and dreaming, but he's suddenly jolted awake by a crowd of souls rushing towards them, wild, almost out of control with frenetic energy, driven on by virtuous will and proper love, the very things Virgil has been talking about. They all rush past, the two out in front calling out, almost as a kind of chant to keep them all moving along, Mary ran with haste to the mountains. And then Caesar pushed into Marseille before hurrying on to Spain to subdue Lerida. The others behind come in with a kind of chorus. Come on, come on, let's keep going. No time to waste with insufficient love. We've got to put out all our energy in doing good to bring us back into health again. Virgil calls out to them, I suppose you're all doing this to make amends for the lack of passionate energy you had before, which kept you from doing good things, right? Well, this man here beside me, he's still alive, I'm not kidding, is eager you know about eagerness now, don't you? He's eager to move up to the next level as soon as it's daylight. Tell us where the nearest staircase is. 
the souls are in such a hurry, they don't even have time for the customary amazement that a living person is here among them. But one of them manages to say as he rushes along, just keep on in the direction we're going and you'll find the pass. But excuse us if we don't stop and chat. We have to keep going. D don't think we're being rude. It's, it's not like we're compelled to do this. It's our own desire to make up for lost time below. But before he passes on, he has a few further words to say. Dante's not sure if he caught everything this person was saying, but he does remember that this person first identified himself as having been, several generations ago, the abbot of San Zeno just outside of Verona. And then he condemned the man who has recently filled the post of abbot at that monastery with his own unqualified, mentally and physically deformed bastard son. Dante is still looking towards this abbot as he runs off, but Virgil directs him to turn his head and notice the two who are bringing up the rear of this crowd, chanting out first, those people who crossed the Red Sea were dead before the next generation crossed the River Jordan. And then, those people who dropped out of Aeneas's mission to found a new settlement in Italy chose to live a life without fame or merit. Well, this is all a little too much for Dante. His thoughts are rushing around in his mind, out of control, but then start settling down as Dante's eyes close into a dream. But we're not given the dream. The canto ends right here. Like the previous canto, canto 18 is split into two parts. But whereas 17 had narrative first and then Virgil's lesson, Canto 18 begins with the lesson, actually a continuation of the lesson from 17, and then gives us the action. And there's not a lot of different actions, but a lot of hasty movement. It's a wonderful contrast to the slow, scholastic reasoning we've had for the whole second half of the previous canto and first half of this canto. We don't get the usual description of the landscape, well, it's dark now, isn't it? And the examples of the opposite of sloth, zeal, and the examples of sloth itself are hurriedly spoken as the souls rush by. It seems appropriate, and perhaps a little comic, that the one resident of this terrace who speaks to Dante is moving past so quickly that Dante catches only a part of what he has to say. In the first moments of the canto, Virgil checks to see if Dante has any further questions. He looks into Dante's face and knows that Dante has more to ask. Instead of waiting for him to pose his question, Virgil speaks first, and although Dante doesn't tell us what he said, it was enough to encourage him to speak further. And Virgil is doing here what the angel of meekness had been doing in the last canto, forestalling the other person so that person doesn't have the pain of asking a question that might provoke a no answer. And it's a good thing that Virgil takes initiative, because Dante is wondering whether he's asking Virgil too many questions. He's just had a long answer to one of his questions. Does he dare put Virgil to the trouble of answering more? Dante's hesitation to pursue his questioning further is, I think, a form of sloth in itself. A and before we go further, maybe it's a good idea to say a few words about sloth. As Virgil had explained twice, actually, in Canto 17, sloth is the result of not loving things intensely enough. We use the term most commonly today just as a synonym for laziness, not bothering to do anything that would take any effort. Let's just have a takeaway tonight. I can't be bothered to cook anything. But it's more complicated than that. As I've done before, I go to Dorothy Sayers for a clear discussion of the further meanings of the sin. 
Sloth, she says, is an insidious sin, taking many different forms. It is not merely idleness of mind and laziness of body. It is that whole poisoning of the will. Wait, let, let me interrupt Dorothy Sayers for a minute. Notice that she defines sloth as a poisoning of the will, that human faculty that Virgil has just told us is the very essence of our human life. It's the means by which our soul can grow or shrink. If our will has been sapped by sloth, then where are we? All right, back to Sayers. It is that whole poisoning of the will, which, beginning with indifference and an attitude of I, I couldn't care less, extends to the deliberate refusal of joy and culminates in morbid introspection and despair. One form of it which appeals very strongly to some modern minds is that acquiescence in evil and error which readily disguises itself as tolerance. Another is that refusal to be moved by the contemplation of the good and beautiful, which is known as disillusionment, and sometimes as knowledge of the world. Yet another is that withdrawal into an ivory tower of isolation, which is the peculiar temptation of the artist and the contemplative, and is popularly called escapism. Well, <laughs> well lots to consider here. Sloth as refusal of joy and morbid introspection and despair, pseudo-tolerance, disillusionment, knowledge of the world, isolation, escapism, quite a lot to take in. And we need examples to bring these to life. I, I've already mentioned that Dante's attitude at the beginning of the canto is an example of sloth. Why should I bother asking more questions? I'm probably being a real pest. He doesn't want to talk more about love. He's said so much already. Maybe I should just keep quiet for once. You can, you can see how this is a form of despair, giving up. You have this love for knowledge, but you let that love go unfulfilled because you think it's not worth it. You disguise this as being concerned about not bothering the other person, but if you really loved this desire for knowledge, you would keep pressing on, wouldn't you? Politely, of course, but persistently. Here's another example, which Dante may be setting up for us, the readers. Are we getting fed up with all of Virgil's philosophic talk, all of this didactic poetry, as it's technically called? How do we read these parts of the poem? Do we feel we can't really be bothered taking the time and effort to work out what he's saying here? Let's just get back to the action. I, I, know, I know I've found these parts of Cantos 17 and 18 difficult to stay with as I've prepared these podcasts, looking for any excuse to turn away and say, check email or go have some tea. And this is being slothful, isn't it? Not enough love of what is in front of us. Not enough love of or desire for what our reason tells us is good to pursue. It's no mistake that this discussion takes place where we are being cleansed of sloth. Staying with Virgil's argument is a healing exercise for us as readers, just as much as rushing zealously around the terrace is for the souls seeking their healing here. Nevertheless, there's no doubt that these cantos are abstract and dry. Has Dante gone too far, become too boring? Shouldn't he enliven the discussion with examples? We might feel this way, 
until we realise that, of course, he's giving us examples. All the drama in the poem, all the characters and actions are examples illustrating the general principles about love that we find in these middle cantos. And if we only had the examples without the explanation, the Divine Comedy would, would just be an action story. No, Dante's zealous conscientiousness requires him to present both the abstract philosophy and the concrete examples. And if we're zealous enough, we'll be glad to welcome both aspects. But what about some other aspects of sloth? I, I think much of popular entertainment caters to our craving for sloth, um, not just because it makes us lazy, but it's amusing us so that we turn off our rational minds and put aside our love of doing good in the world. The political chaos is too painful to attend to, and anyway, what good could I do? I'll just look at another cookery show, even though I'm never going to cook anything like the things they're doing on the show. Or, of course, that great trap of sloth, the video game, and all those online distractions. Deaden our rational faculties. Oh yes, of course, all these things are good in their way, but much of their effect is to lure us deeper in and lull our reason to sleep, disabling our willpower. Or how about when you spot some kind of abuse in the office and go point it out to the boss, who reassures you that this is just the way that we've always done it here. We, we can't go changing our procedures just because there are a few people who take advantage of them. You're always going to have a few bad apples in any office. We have to put up with this fact. Yes, see, this is sloth, that knowledge of the world Dorothy Sayers was speaking of, and that use of tolerance to disguise our indifference. The boss shows sloth, and is encouraging you to be slothful too. I'm not sure what you can do in this situation and remain zealous for the truth and for right action. As Henry David Thoreau said in a somewhat similar situation, this is hard. Sloth gives up. Zeal persists. Even if you know you can't do a perfect job in following what is good and right, you still make the effort. As G.K. Chesterton said, if a thing is worth doing, it's worth doing badly. <laughs> that is, it's worth doing in itself, even if you can only do it badly. Well, along come these zealous souls, rushing along the terrace. Wait a minute, isn't it nighttime and isn't this kind of movement forbidden here at night? No, I think it's okay. Sordello had said earlier on, no one can move upwards in the night. And here they're just moving in a circle around the terrace, not upwards. But in any case, these, <laughs> these are the last people who would want to stop. Movement is so urgent for these souls that nothing is going to stop them. And these rushing souls, coming right after Virgil's lesson, immediately become an enactment of this lesson, impelled as they are by buon volere e giusto amor, good willpower and proper love, the very things Virgil has just been talking about. We ought to spend a minute on the two examples of zeal and the two of sloth, two only because they haven't got time for the customary three, Dante has set himself the task of finding an example from Mary's life for each of the virtues on these terraces. Where does Mary show zeal? As soon as the angel Gabriel has left her after delivering the Annunciation news, she rushes off to the hill country to see her cousin Elizabeth. Why? 
Does she want to share the good news? Does she need someone to advise her? If she were slothful, she might just say, I ought to go see Elizabeth, but it, it's been a pretty eventful day, what with that angel and everything. I'd better get a good night's sleep and set off tomorrow. Or maybe I'll just write her a letter. No, wait, why bother her? I I'm sure she has enough to think about as is without me coming to give her my news. And that's the point. Mary does not do those slothful things. She takes action immediately, and, as Luke says, she goes with haste. When you see what is the right course, you put all your determination and energy into it. And the example of Caesar? Oh, <laughs> I'm afraid it doesn't really move me, but I can see the zeal in Caesar's quickly dealing with Marseille, and then not resting up there, but immediately rushing across to Spain to take care of the trouble there. When there's a job to be done, you'd, you'd better get over there and do it. The two examples of sloth both deal with people reluctant to follow the divine course. The Israelites, after crossing the Red Sea, which had potted for them by divine command, then were, time and again, impatient with the hardships they had to endure in the desert. They, they even complained that they'd be better off back in Egypt. They simply did not show enough love for this journey that God had appointed for them. They were then led around the desert for forty years, so the story goes, before crossing the Jordan River into the Promised Land, by which time everyone who had originally crossed the Red Sea, except for Joshua and Caleb, had died off. Their slothful reluctance led to their missing out on the Promised Land of milk and honey. In the Aeneid, we see a group of Aeneas's followers choosing to stay in Sicily rather than venture forth one more time on the seas that had been so treacherous. They held back and lost their chance to make heroes of themselves. One more point before we close. That anonymous abbot of San Senno rails against the current abbot of the monastery put in that post by his father, although he was unqualified to be a good pastor of the monks there. Why does Dante put this detail here on the Terrace of Sloth? Has Alberto della Scala, the father here, been another example of sloth? Is it that he has not shown enough zeal in doing the right thing for the Church, but instead has taken the easy, convenient way of appointing a new abbot? Does this example point to one of the motives of corrupt practice, that people just want to make it easier to have their own way? They don't have enough love for the right things, in this case appointing a good abbot, and so they just take whoever is at hand? I mean, if Alberto had wanted to keep control of that beautiful monastery, he could have appointed one of his own party to be abbot, but could at least have taken the time to choose who among his own party would be qualified to be an abbot. But it seems he couldn't be bothered to go even that far. Corruption mixed with sloth is just sloppy, and, of course, harmful, too. Well, we leave Dante at the end of this canto falling into a dream. What was that dream about? We find out in the next canto. See you there.